Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're talking to one of the leading historians of America, Jill Lepore, about her new book. It's called This America, The Case for the Nation. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. We recorded this conversation a few days ago. I'm in my office in Cambridge. She was in her office in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Harvard. We're going to get on to Brexit towards the end because nationalism matters for our story too. But we started at the heart of the American story of the nation and that's the Civil War. I think I'd like to start not at the beginning of the story but with the Civil War because reading your book, it just seems that that's so much at the heart of the story even now. So I'd like to ask a question which I'm aware is a kind of slightly naive outsider's question about a complicated history. But if in the Civil War, one side, the Unionist side, was fighting to defend the nation, and Lincoln, in the Gettysburg Address, he uses the nation five times. I read it last night and I counted. It's He's on the side of the nation. And the other side are trying to break up the nation. How do we end up with a situation where the winners, the people fighting for the nation, lose claims over the nation to the losers? How did the losers get to be the ones who say what the American nation is? That's a great question. And the short answer is the Union, that is the North, won the war, but the South, that is the Confederacy, won the peace. And what I mean by that is if we think of the war, as you say, as a war between the Union that's trying to preserve the Union and the idea of the nation state and the Southern secessionist forces who are making claims about the rights of states to secede from a nation state. How the South wins the peace is by agreeing with the North or persuading the North during the peace both to undo the terms of reconstruction that would have been Abraham Lincoln's last legacy and to remember the war as, as being about something completely different than what it was actually about, so that the principles of illiberalism on which the Confederacy was founded, which were, you know, very explicitly the Confederacy was founded on the idea of racial supremacy, of a racial hierarchy. Those are upended during the Reconstruction when the Union, the federal government, imposes a set of regulations, essentially a military occupation of the South to enforce the promises of the new amendments to the Constitution that are supposed to be preserving and uh, enforcing equality of all peoples, those are abdicated by the North when Reconstruction is ended prematurely and the federal government agrees to the constitutionality of all these new Jim Crow laws that essentially replicate the system of racial hierarchy that the South was fighting for in the first place. And then meanwhile, in the big sort of you know, like makeup agreement between the the great warring brothers of the North and the South, 
There's an agreement to decide that the war had never actually been about racial hierarchy or about slavery, but that the war had just been about this question of states' rights. And that's really affected. People point to 1913 when there's the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg when Woodrow Wilson goes and speaks and there's a big reunion of all the the blue and the gray, the North and the white soldiers. And there's just a kind of big kind of group hug about, well, this war is good that it's behind us. It's good that we all agree about these new terms of our nationhood. But the new terms have been set by the Confederacy. And it still seems kind of odd that that worked as a strategy in the name of the nation. And it feeds through to today. I mean, it's one of the themes that runs through your book. You hear the echoes of it right the way through to today, that somehow the winners become embarrassed about claiming the nation and the losers who wanted to break up the nation become the enthusiasts. Yeah. It's, I mean, and it's, it's become a feature of American life. It's become a feature of American life. I mean, the, the Civil War piece has a precedent you know, during you know the Constitutional Convention, when the Northern delegates really don't want to sanction slavery in the new frame of government, and the South sort of says, "Look, either <laughs> either we sanction slavery in this new Constitution on our terms, or we walk." And they win, and they had done the same thing you know, during the Continental Congress. So the South has this extraordinary political power over the North because of its willingness to leave the Union. It doesn't have that willingness in the 20th century. It's it's economically in a much more dependent position. But what changes in the 20th century, and I think puts people trying to defend the idea of liberalism as a national idea on the defensive, is that to, to make claims in the name of the nation is by the middle decades of the 20th century so loathsome to anyone, you know, in the political center or, or even vaguely left of the political center. It's, it's completely besmirched because of German nationalism, Italian nationalism, and, you know, the sort of genocidal nationalism of the first decades of the 20th century. People just cringe at the very idea of making a claim. Liberals cringe at the very idea of making a claim about the nation. But people who aren't liberal never cringe at that. And so the ground is over the course of the 20th century, but I think especially after the 1980s, completely ceded to the far right to talk about the possibility for nations doing good in the world. Is is another part of it. So you say at the beginning of your book that to understand America as a nation, you have to understand that the language of nation state doesn't really work when we're talking about a state nation, that the idea of the nation comes after the construction of the state. And one of the challenges for, for people on the liberal or left side of politics is to their opponents, when they invoke the nation, it's easy for their opponents to say, you're really talking about government. Like in state nations, the, the idea of building mm-hmm. the nation is you build it through the federal government. And that's the thing that we're attacking. Mm-hmm. So we're the nation because we're the people, we're the soil, we're the land, whatever, we're the idea of race. And your nation is is a kind of bureaucratic administrative state. And that also goes right the way mm-hmm. back to the origin. It does. But there have also always been people who kind of tried to crack that nut and said, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not going to help to divide up our arguments that way, because then we're always talking past each other. And then we've also said, okay, you you guys get to make these claims that will touch people in a deep kind of passionate way. And we have to make these, you know, you get the kind of hearts arguments and and we get the heads (laughs) arguments. And, you know, at the end of the day, who's going to win the hearts versus the the hearts people are going to win. And then they could there because they're also going to say they're only talking about they're going to say what they're talking about is patriotism. 
And then that leaves the people who are making claims for the importance of federated governments, national governments to provide services, that that's not a form of patriotism, that that's something different than patriotism. It's just sort of like just it's just giving up the entire game at the, like which color token you pick out of the game board box, you know, it, but the, but there have always been people who kind of looked at that game box and said, yeah, no. The dice are loaded, and, and I'm not taking that one guy. Like, like let's. I'm going to take this token because I can't win the argument on these terms. I can't even engage with you on an argument if, if we play with this game box. So there have always been people that rejected that. I just don't think they have been as hurt as, as probably they need to be in these particularly dangerous days. Seen from the outside, one of the things that's striking about the American nationalism that criticizes the the head argument is it's also focused against Washington DC against the Capitol. You see so hear that in Trump's inaugural address. The last time we spoke on this podcast was talking just before Trump's inaugural about inaugurals. And then he comes and gives this terrifying address in which he basically says the nation is something that you can set against its capital, its seat of government against DC. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you get a bit of that in Europe now. I mean, I think French nationalism is kind of set in opposition to Paris. There's even a little bit of it in the UK, like London is the symbol of something that's not the nation. It's either international, cosmopolitan or corrupt. But it seems particularly strong in the American case. And again, it's so odd because, after all, the capital, the seat of government is the thing that built the nation. Yeah, it's really odd and it's quite visceral. I remember a few years ago, at the height of the Tea Party movement, Glenn Beck, the Fox News then celebrity, had organized a big rally in Washington called the 9-12 rally. And it was the, it's supposed to be the day after 9-11. Maybe this was like 2010 or something like that. It was in Obama's first term. And he was bringing all kinds of Tea Partiers to Washington for this rally. And the 9-12 idea was that they were supposed to be experiencing the kind of passionate unity that that allegedly, although not really, flowed across the country in the hours and days after 9-11. And I I had gone down there to to, just be on a panel at the National Press Club with Tucker Carlson of all people and Dick Armey from the Freedom Works Foundation, which was a Tea Party organization. And it was this very (laughs) weird event. But, you know, I went down to D.C. like I always did, like wandered around the museums and went running on the mall and like went to my favorite, you know, went to see the monument. Anyway, and then I go to the National Press Club and I walk into this panel and the entire auditorium is filled with people wearing Freedom Works T-shirts and baseball hats, which were kind of like the MAGA, the red Make American Great hats of the Tea Party movement. They were very, they're quite iconic. And what had happened was that Dick Army had had his staff buy up all the tickets to this event. The minute they went on sale, they kind of rigged the online system and then they filled the crowd, which is tea partiers. And it's a whole other story what happened during that during that event. But afterwards, a bunch of the people in the audience who were turned out to be quite lovely and came up to talk to me. And I kept saying, wow, it must be so exciting. They're from all over, you know, from Oklahoma, from Texas, from Kansas. So, wow, was, you know, most of them are first time ever in D.C. They'd come for this Glenn, Glenn Beck rally. And I said, you know, what... Is this so exciting for you? Like, it's a beautiful fall weekend. You know, what's, what have you been seeing? Did you go to see the monument? Have you been to the Lincoln Memorial? And they all just seethed and said, you know, this is the the den of Satan. This is the cesspool of hell. Like, they had this brutal, bitter attitude about 
the nation's capital. I mean, I don't even really project, like, I think it's kind of a yucky city. It's too hot. I don't really like, like, but it is, it's nonetheless stirs me as a citizen to go see these monuments to emancipation or to the suffering and struggle of the Vietnam War. Like, things really stir the, the museums. Like, there's something just been stripped away that some piece of, because cities are associated with the left and because it's the seat of the federal government, you're not allowed, like, you can't love London anymore. Like, it's crazy. But it, you can see how the cockamamie logic by which it's, it's a necessary part of the indoctrination into the idea that there is no such thing as a liberal nationalism or a liberal patriotism. In a way, the difference with the European case or with Paris or with London the argument is against these are the financial centers. London is the city of London. It's the so if you're trying to defend the nation against its capital, it's because the capital has been captured by these, and we'll come on to this in a second, these international financial interests and so on. But you know, that's New York. That's not that's right. not Washington. I mean, the, the idea that all, all right, the, no, this all is a more is, pure form of just hatred of the federal government. Yeah, that's all that's there. <laughs> that's all that's there. Uh, so it's weird. So, you know, Trump's other great rhetorical motif is to set so he sets the nation against its government even though he is now the government and he sets the nation against the globalists and again as you describe in your book there's a long deep history here and yet that word globalist and globalism the cachet it's got is relatively recent the kind of potency of it is there something new in that or is it is it part of that longer story I mean it would have once been the nationalists and the internationalists rather than the globalists is, is globalist yeah, a more acute well, I, version? Globalist is is code for Jew. I mean, it's a form of anti-Semitism, right? Historically, people that don't belong to a nation are the Jews. They are the globalists of all eternity. Like, that's, that's the historical origin of the fiendishness of globalists, right? They're, they're the money lenders. They're the people that cross boundaries to borrow and to lend money and to profit off of you. Every time Trump, you, you can see you can see the lip sneer. I mean, it is a very direct invocation of a very long history of anti-Semitism. It's a different version of when he talks about immigrants, which calls upon a quite different history. It's a different history of of racist nationalism. But you know, there's but there have been times when concerns about immigration have been concerns about Jewish immigration. <laughs> but that's not what he's concerned about. He's got them in these two different piles, you know. Well, I can use my racist ideas over here when I talk about immigration, and I can use my anti-Semitic ideas over here when I talk about, about globalism, and I don't have to use any of those terms, and I have kind of infinite deniability because globalism is not very popular right now because of the global financial collapse and the general corporate greed and misery that global corporations have inflicted on people around the world. And immigration really is a crisis in a lot of parts of the world for very complicated reasons. So it's a very effective way for him to construct a national identity against people who, you know, he's going to claim don't belong. And that earlier version of it, that you know, there used to be that contrast. You could be an internationalist, and that meant you were a kind of naive leftist sort of peacenik. Right, like a Wilsonian, yeah, exactly. and, and, Churchillian. And often in the 20th century, that was the, the contrast. There were these people who were basically useful idiots for our enemies. Um, whereas I agree, yeah. like the globalism is much more clearly about Jews. 
has that gone? Do you do you hear that kind of internationalist nationalist contrast anymore? Is that just being completely drowned out by this this blunter version? Yeah, who are the? I mean, I think that environmentalists have replaced the internationalists. Yeah. I'm just to throw that out there. Maybe I won't defend that, but that, <laughs> yeah, like no, as you spoke, I thought about Greta Thunberg is the is the naive person who's yeah, kind so of the sailing use, the across the idiot. ocean at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, that you know, it's a way to kind of deflect, not to critique the agenda, but there's something about the, the there's a parallel with the, the ineffectiveness and the naivete, or the view that that's what we're confronting there. Yeah, I mean, and the other code term has always been cosmopolitan, which we don't talk about anymore very much either. The mood of cosmopolitanism is on the wane, I guess. Yeah, although I think, that, again, that word has more of a cachet in Europe still, and, and the code there, again, is completely oh, yeah. clear. The mm-hmm. Rothschilds of the Cosmopolitans. Yeah. That's how that one goes. Um, can I read you a line? So your book is, among other things, it's a kind of call to arms to go back to what you said earlier. It's like you can't see the argument, you can't play the game always on the other side's terms or you will always lose. So you have a line, which is a very powerful line, and if it's true, it's kind of you know, the biggest challenge of all. In American history, liberals have failed time and again to defeat illiberalism except by making appeals to national aims and ends. So you can't win against illiberalism unless you're willing to make the national liberal case. So when you look at Trump's opponents now, including the people who are running to face him in the next presidential election, do you see someone, anyone, making a good version of that case? I wish I could say that I did. And I, I certainly think there are stronger and weaker candidates. I don't mean to tar them all with the same brush, but I don't. And, and part of this has to do with our electoral process, that these people are engaged in a primary contest against one another where they're competing for different voters within the Democratic Party rather than speaking to the wide electorate. And this is a long and bloody and largely self-destructive process. And no one seems to have much discipline about the nature of the destruction that they're engaged in. I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that one of these people could get through the primary process within the party and emerge speaking effectively about national aims and ends. But I don't see that from here. No, I don't. Do you? No. (laughs) But then I, yeah. I think once you start looking for it, maybe you can, like you say, you can see people who are more plausible candidates for that role. Yeah. I mean, who do you think? Yeah. So looking looking at it now, I mean, for instance, could Elizabeth Warren make that case? I, I think she's probably the best positioned person to do that. I think that she is, it's most effective, actually, at really trying to speak to all Americans, even during the Democratic primary process. The The... The classic error on the left is to speak to subgroups or to speak to the world, right? That there are these two constituencies that are deemed legitimate to talk about, groups that are in conflict with one another. So kind of calling, reaching, you know, what in the 60s would have been called minorities, but we wouldn't, we don't even use the term anymore. But speaking to different constituencies, ethnic, religious, regional constituencies within the United States, or making big arguments about the planet. Right. That's also acceptable on the left. It's not globalism, but that's the environment. That's the internationalism piece. That's the, you know, our Paris Climate Accords will be restored agenda, et cetera. And I'm being blithe here, but I'm not (laughs) glib, but I'm not meaning to demean these issues. But 
but you just don't hear anybody among this group of 20 soon to be 11 whatever eventually to be one eventually to be one you know really talking about what is the purpose of our nation and what holds us together there's a lot of gobbledygook the that's not who we are nonsense <laughs> nonsense which was you know which was an obamaism and became a kind of crazy hillary clintonism but that's the kind of basket of deplorables 47 percent like that's making war within the like that it acts like it's about unity or you know kind of nationhood but it's actually it's not it's about contempt for large segments of the american population I, I don't think Warren is ever guilty of that. She doesn't express that kind of contempt. She has a lot of fury for the oligarchy, <laughs> but she doesn't express contempt for any group of people. And the oligarchy can be set against the nation if you do it skillfully. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the populist move. That's the piece of, you know, the city of London, hating the city of London. Like That's historically in American history and certainly in, in, in European history as well. That's historically been a more effective move of the left than it has been of the right. I mean, and that warns in a long tradition of populists from the left. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I found myself thinking, reading your book, and then also recently uh, I was reading an article about the fight going on within the Democratic Party and saying that it is, as many Democratic fights are now, fundamentally a generational divide, and it's young against old. Mm -hmm. And classically, the nation is the idea that bridges generational divides in politics, and not just young and old, but the the dead and the unborn as well. I mean, that's part of the point of the nation as a, a vehicle of hope, is that it is the thing that brings together people across these age barriers. And again, it struck me that mm-hmm. within the context of the opposition to Trump, the politician who can bridge the generation gap will win. And bridging the generation gap is really hard without a language, if not of nation, of some kind of wider community. And in a way, that's the challenge now. Again, it's hard to see how to do it because part of the problem is that the idea of nation is one of the things that divides the generations. The young are much less amenable to mm-hmm. being told about the value of the nation than older generations. But, you know, I do think it's very fashionable now to to look with grave disappointment back upon Obama's presidency. And I, I share some of that. But you can look back with a lot of inspiration at Obama's 2008 campaign in this regard. I mean, one of the things that Obama did, because he did talk about the nation all the time, he deployed himself as a parable about what it is to be an American people. <laughs> you know what I mean? That he was, that his own family story, his family story, I mean, this drove people on the right nuts. He talked about his family background all the time. But the whole thing was essentially a biblical parable. Like, I am all three sons of Noah. I am everybody, you know, that sort of the multitude is within me in a kind of Whitman-y sense. But one of the ways that he was so effective rhetorically and here, you know, again, like a, a great triumph of a political campaign was by not seeding arguments 
and whole vocabularies to his political opponents just because they were not seen as acceptable by people on the left. So Obama pretty famously said, look, like we can't let the right be the only people that talk about virtue and character and goodness and decency and integrity. You know, that's sort of the rise of the, the new right, the Christian right in the United States had meant that on the left, people just identified all vocabulary that had to do with decency as whistleblowing for the evangelical Christian right. And so they would never talk about things in that way. <laughs> and Obama, to his great credit, said, okay, that's nuts. Like, we have just said as a political party, we're not going to talk about virtue. Like, think about that. Like, just think about how crippled we are as a party. Like, why let our opponents set the terms of that debate? Like, we don't have to be invoking a specific kind of bent knee appeal to Jesus to say, sometimes there are things that are the right thing to do. And sometimes there are countries that are doing the right thing. And sometimes our country has done the wrong thing. And we need to know how to steer the, our course so that we do the right thing as a people and as a nation. And he would say that with really powerful effect. And he borrowed from and trained himself in the rhetorical kind of preaching style of civil rights leaders who you know mainly came from a Christian tradition. And that was a huge influence on his later electoral success. It wasn't a strict kind of like invoke the nation, but it was also, although he did do that, but it was a very self-conscious refusal to let his political opponents set the terms of every discussion. Joe Biden is clearly the person who's trying to channel that now. He's not nearly as skillful rhetorically, but it's also what seems to have changed in a way is that the people who are really alienated by Biden, and there are many, and sort of antagonized by him, and that includes lots and lots of younger voters, don't think that he stands for something like that, that bridges these divides. He's kind of, you know, he's a centrist, or he's a compromiser, he's somehow caught in the middle. He's not, he's not the person who straddles the divide, he's just somehow trapped in the middle of it. So it's like centrism has become the thing that that, that form yeah. of politics is associated I with. I think, right. Which is uh, And I think... It took the particular skills of an Obama to do what he did with that message. If we could only like turn back the hands of time and, and Warren had run in 2016 or Biden run in 2016, it's difficult to see, especially for Biden, how that works generationally, as you say. I think for there's a lot more tension because of the incredible misrepresentation that the Twitter population is. Twitter is... People who post politically on Twitter are younger, more male, and far more to the left than the rest of the population. So you hear a lot of anti-Biden stuff on Twitter, which, because a lot of reporters report from Twitter, embarrassingly enough, you hear a lot of it in the press. But I think that Biden's big appeal, honestly, is for people who would like to just think the country isn't as horrible as it currently seems and like if he could be president maybe the country could actually be kind of mostly like a little bit better <laughs> there's this there's a kind of small expectation around biden which would just be like if he could just win like most of the gross illegality and wild corruption going on would be swept out of office and that would in of itself just write the ship enough that people could get up in the morning without screaming. That's, I think, the appeal of Biden. And I don't think young people have that 
because they really young people don't have that before that they want to go back to a kind of before Trump that they even really fully get. I think that's a liability for him with younger voters that it's a little bit hard to kind of nail down in any, I'm sure, kind of quantitative polling data way. But I, th- I think it's an issue. I don't want to be super semantic here, but it was really striking that when you were talking there, you talked about the country rather than the nation. You know, the country's not as bad as it seems. And that's the other word that people reach for. We're one country. We might not be one nation, but is there a difference there? I'm just thinking as, as you were speaking, why do people sometimes say country? Is it an easier word to say in this context? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, is it, maybe is it softer? Because as you say, in the 20th century, the word nation, it has this dark baggage. And it's hard to, yeah. you know, it's, it's got a completely different baggage than it had when Lincoln was talking at Gettysburg. Well, he didn't talk about the country, Absolutely. he talked about the nation, the idea of the nation. Right, um, right. And people understood that that's what they were fighting for, too. And I think at a lot of moments in history, people have understood what that's, that's what they were fighting for. No, it's, you know, it's it has this weird besmirched quality to it, and it's an obstacle. But again, you know, I stand by the passage you quoted. I, I just, it's maybe, you know, one of your listeners will point out, wait, no, here's someone who affected a lot of change in the United States without making that call. But, I mean, you go down the list of, you know, social reformers like Jane Addams or civil rights activists, Martin Luther King, or anti-lynching crusaders, Ida B. Wells, or abolitionists and people who fought for equal rights like Frederick Douglass. Like, these people are all making these claims at some level as for the good of the nation. I think you can make the same thing about, you know, same-sex marriage claims. People are like, this is, this is the right thing to do. This is a sort of who we are kind of move. This is the right thing for the United States to do. I'm going to ask you, uh, so I've been talking about your country, uh, not fully understanding how it's going there. So in this country, we're in the middle of a, it is a crisis, it's a political or constitutional crisis, but the idea of the nation is is really implicated in it. And it's weird and it's complicated because Boris Johnson is now routinely accused of being a nationalist, including by nationalists. So the Scottish National Party got up in Parliament and denounced him <laughs> as he was about to become Prime Minister, sort of as he was on his way to the palace, saying, this is terrible, we're about mm-hmm. to be governed by a nationalist. That word is now carrying so much baggage. And the added complexity in the in the UK case is that we're also a state nation. You know, we had to be built politically, the United Kingdom, but we're made up of nations. And the other thing that's mm-hmm. often said about Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage and others and and Brexit itself, including the the hard Brexit movement, is that it's a vehicle for English nationalism. So looked at from the outside, does does that make sense to you? To ask a simple question, what does English nationalism mean to you? Do you see it? Yeah, I think that I have some vague, gauzy sense of that, but I will say from the outside, it's pretty confusing. Yeah, it's pretty confusing from the inside too. (laughs) Like, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I don't think that people are talking to one another particularly effectively about what their claims are. The kind of, I don't know, word policing around nationalism is, is a whole lot of wasted energy. But there are since and have been since the beginnings of nationalism, you know, the term that is first used at the end of the 18th century, 
there's a kind of enlightenment-based liberal nationalism, which is that here's what a nation is. A nation is an invention, whether it's, you know, first a state that then becomes a nation or it's a nation that, you know, that becomes a state. But a nation that is also a state is an invention and it's a contrivance and it is put together by people who have an interest in guaranteeing the rights of citizens. So in order to define a group of people as citizens, they have to belong to something and what they belong to is a nation state. And it's good to divide the world into nations, therefore, because these are the only institutions in the history of humanity that have ever been devised that can guarantee equal rights for all their members through the exercise of the state as an authority and as a guarantor of liberties and of rights. And that's what enlightenment liberal nationalism is. It has always competed with, in some ways, its real opposite, which is illiberal nationalism, which is the idea that people that belong to a nation, uh, what they share is some kind of a race-based ancestry or a religious commitment that illiberal nationalism can be a religious nationalism as well as a racial nationalism, and that what its objective is is to exclude everyone else from the rights and privileges of membership. And both in the UK and in the United States, we've always had both of those versions. And they are in a kind of, you know, matter, antimatter <laughs> battle with one another. And then it explodes pretty often. And it's pretty dangerous when it explodes. And we are, I think, both of our nations struggling through a moment when illiberal nationalism has the upper hand. It's sometimes said about English nationalism that one unique feature of it, it's the the English are the only large nation that have no political representation at all. So in the United States, whatever the problem is, it's not an absence of representation at the mm-hmm. state level, at the local level, and then at the federal level. Mm-hmm. The, the British state, the UK state, is this oddity. It has now devolved national powers to assemblies in, in Edinburgh and Cardiff and one in Belfast that doesn't function mm-hmm. at the moment. And that the English are this kind of uh, disenfranchised people. I'm never sure whether that really has any purchase. And you know, as an argument, it sounds a lot weaker than I suspect some of the more blood and soil versions that are lying behind some of the current mm-hmm. politics. But does that, again, have any sort of looked at from the outside? Does, do the English have a case? Can you, as a people like the English, as a nation like the English, feel that you need some representation? Well, I l- let me just be completely clear that the ordinary American experience of this phenomenon is listening to the radio and some American will be like in a fish and chips place on the coast and some woman will say, well, I just don't like, there's nobody English anymore in my village. <laughs> like, that's our experience of this story. <laughs> like, no, there's not a lot of it, you know, particularly in-depth, coverage of the of the nature of this division and this question of representation and, and presumably in that whether... version of it the distinction between england and britain or the uk doesn't register at all it's assumed that that's what we're talking about we're just talking about england yeah i don't think americans get that and yet it's a huge part of the story <clears throat> the difference yeah yeah and but i mean i would say being not just a consumer of news but as a historian that it's not out of the realm of possibility or even feasibility that maybe there should be a new political settlement. What's out of the realm of practicality is that the current political institutions are capable of making a settlement that people would abide by. 
that's what I think feels so explosively dangerous, right? People are might be upset about how things are apportioned representationally, economically, and in every other way. But by what means can that be fixed that would have legitimacy? That's what feels to me so really tricky. I think the version of that here has been the kerfuffle about impeachment, the sort of fantasy that this wrong could be righted by removing this president from like whatever, all the wrongs of, of Trump's administration, people's feeling that he shouldn't have been elected in the first place, that this could be this could be undone. And then the kind of cooler heads in Congress, the sort of Nancy Pelosi arm of things here saying, yeah, but if we undo this because we maybe sort of can, but we obviously can't and we need the Senate to, but the Senate's not going to do this, but we actually, we destroy faith and what remains of faith in our institutions and the legitimate processes by which we affect political change. And that's kind of where where things are marooned here. I mean, if someone were to come up with a proposal for reimagining parliament, this is really not the time. You wouldn't start from here. It's the classic. How do you get there? Well, I wouldn't start from here. Yeah, exactly. I can ask you one right. last question. So the, in the wider international context, so that line of, of yours that I quoted, it begins in American history, but there's a an international context too. When you look around, I mean, Macron is the obvious example, but do you see anyone making the the liberal national case outside of the US in a way you think we could do with one of those? I mean, it may be that the opposition to Brexit in this country over time will produce won't be a Macron-style politician, but it will produce a new kind of politician making the case against Brexit in the name of the nation. But mm-hmm. we haven't got that yet. I mean, that, that job is still open. But do you see, outside of the US, a politician who fits the bill? I'm sure there are. Uh, but n- no one is, I'm sad to say... Springs to mind. Leaping, leaping <laughs> so to mind. So it's not Macron yeah. in your mind. I mean, some people pinned no, some pretty big hopes on him as the the guy who could speak. Yeah. The, you know, it was a language of nationalism. He's a nationalist. I mean, he's also European. Yeah. But it's channeling that yeah. French idea that there's something special about them. Yeah. I think, you know, we haven't touched on this, and it's a terribly sour note on which to end, but I think there are real structural reasons that are beyond the kind of commitment rhetorically to speaking in the interests or the aims of of the nation from a liberal vantage that have to do with the disarray and freneticism of online sort of social media-based news distribution and communication. It's very, very difficult to do the work of holding together people around an idea, a hard idea, an idea that requires generosity and open-mindedness in the current media environment, by which I mean the broadly technologies of communication. So yeah, I think it's a it's a pretty big obstacle and someone who hopes to crack through with an open-hearted, broad-minded message about what nations are for and and what good they can do in the world would have to be pretty technologically sophisticated in order to get that message out in any meaningful way. We will tweet the link to Jill's book at tppodcast underscore. A quick reminder that if you want to come to the special event Helen Thompson and I are recording with Rory Stewart on the 29th of October, it is part of the LRB's 40th birthday anniversary celebrations. It's happening in or near the Palace of Westminster. 
Tickets are available first for Talking Politics listeners. If you want to get some, just go to lrb.me forward slash Talking Politics and you will find out how. Next week, we have a guide to the UK Constitution, how it works and how at the moment it isn't working. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.